Two decades ago, the producers of the James Bond movies hired legendary crime novelist Donald E. Westlake to come up with a story for the next Bond film. The plot Westlake dreamed up, about a Western businessman seeking revenge after being kicked out of Hong Kong when the island was returned to Chinese rule, had all the elements of a classic Bond adventure, but political concerns kept it from being made. Never one to let a good story go to waste, Westlake wrote an original novel based on the premise instead, a novel he never published while he was alive. Hard Case Crime is proud to give that novel its first publication ever, together with a brand new afterword by one of the movie producers describing the project's genesis, and to give fans their first taste of the Westlake script bond that might have been. Hello there, listeners, and welcome back to the James Bond Complex, the podcast where we discuss, rejoice, and analyze in the James Bond Farla in all its shapes and forms, from Fleming to films, and everything in between. Ooh. I'm one of you, too. I like, it. I like it when you do it with me, Matt. It just gets me so excited for these episodes. And um, my, my name's Edgar. I've given away your name. Spoilers. You're Matt. I'm Edgar. I'm, I'm Matt. I'm I. I think you are. I think you are. Don't tell me you're reading off off camera cue cards here to tell yourself that you're Matt here. Um, so we have a special episode with us. We have an old friend of the show who's been on. Uh, well, we've had two conversations, but those conversations were split into multiple episodes. So I guess this would be like episode number five at this point. Uh, Phil Pajali, um, MI6 uh, confidential contributor, academic, scholar, gentleman. Bond fan. Phil, how are you doing? Welcome back. Thank you so much, Edgar. I'm glad to be uh, back on the show with you and Matt uh, to to talk about a um, very special Bond-related book here. So. Bond-related being the uh, related being the operative word. Uh, we'll we'll get into those details, uh, but l- maybe let's just break a little bit of the ice as we as we are wont to do. Uh, do, you, do you have any Bond-related material on your mind before we 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 uh, we start getting into the heart of the matter, uh, Phil? Um, no, not at the moment. Uh, just you know, I'm I'm basically like everybody else, just waiting for you know, No Time to Die to come out eventually. <laughs> mm. um, but you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm actually one one of the people that believes that it will eventually go to streaming, uh, just with, with the situation going on, obviously with with COVID. Um, but uh, you know, there there has been there's talk now that it's going to be, of course, pushed back to. Uh, it's going to be pushed from November to sometime next year. So that might you know that might happen too. Um, but uh, you know, other than that, um, there hasn't been, yeah, a whole lot on my mind about Bond. Um, so, I've, you know, of course, I've been rewatching some of the old movies um, and uh, doing some reading and research. And uh, as yeah. you are wont to do, right? I mean, I've had plenty. I've I've been um, been working from home for the past what is it, four months now? So mm-hmm. I'm just now. We're just now really getting back into the building uh, at work. So Interesting. I've had plenty of time to read and watch movies. And, nice. uh, you know, we were, we had, um, 
we were talking recently about um, Zero Minus Ten, the Raymond Benson books. I read that and really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, the thing with No Time, it's funny, you, you know, we we're going to talk No Time tonight, yesterday, I think uh, it's on our Instagram and um, and Facebook page, we were at the cinema, we're recording this on a Saturday in early July, and uh, the cinemas are open here, and we went to see an old movie there, they're playing the oldies but goodies, because there's nothing else to play, and uh, on the way, to, oh no, it was coming out of the room, I think it was after the movie, uh, yeah. we took a picture, but it's like the old... It's the April 2020. <laughs> It'll be interesting to watch them try to reignite the excitement. I mean, for the fan base, for us, Bond, Bond, Bond geeks, I guess, uh, you know, we'll, oh, new trailer, oh, new pictures. Still, they still put new pictures, but it's like, okay, I've seen that sequence before. Or I know they're in the base and they have guns and you see, oh, I see uh, Safin with a gun, but I know where he is in the, lo- in the location is probably aiming the gun at Bond and like it's, it's eh, there's nothing new. It's just different angles of stuff we've seen before. It's, it, it, it'll hurt the box office in the long, long run uh, for sure. They'll, they'll never make as much money as they would have if there was no pandemic. But at the same time, you, you need to release the picture. Yeah, people are afraid, and understandably so. So, <laughs> whatever you know, whenever we go back to this, I don't, I don't, I can't even say normalcy at this point. But I mean, it's going to take a while before people are just comfortable doing these things. So absolutely, absolutely. It it did warm my heart to see some people at the movie theater yesterday, but because uh, you know, it's 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 an activity and and a culture that uh, you as Madden, you as well, Phil, that you know I hold very near and dear to my heart. So that was fun, and I had seen something the previous week too, another oldie, but but a goodie. And there were people in the room too, and there were people buying tickets for other movies, and that was nice to see. But uh, we are, well, unless there was any other Bond-related material you wanted to chit-chat about. No, that was that was pretty much it. Yeah. For so, now. <laughs> for now, yeah. Speaking of James Bond, gentlemen, where we will be talking about James Bond, but not really about James Bond at all uh, this morning. Um, you know, Phil, you've been on a few shows already, uh, and we're always happy to have you along. And a topic that's come up fairly regularly or consistently anyways, on the previous episodes, whether it was an, an author, a, a spy and crime fiction author uh, by the name of Donald E. Westlake. Uh, he's come up in some very interesting conversations we've had in the past, some conversations that related to critical junctions in the history uh, of the franchise, especially when, when Barbara and Michael took over after Cubby's passing. And it felt only natural... Uh, to culminate, you know, the, the, the Avengers Endgame version of those conversations could could not be anything else other than the surprise novel that we got a few a few years ago. So it would call Forever and a Death by Donald E. Westlake. Um, so maybe Phil, do you want to just reiterate some of the like a succinct version of of why we're talking, well, I mean, not why we're talking, we're talking about the book, because we like Bond, and we like spy movies, and we like novels, and we like having you on the show. That's the obvious answer. But why we're talking about a book that exists that's called Forever and a Death, and it's written by Donald E. Westlake. 
Okay, yeah, sure. So, um, Donnelly Westlake um, was uh, an author who worked um, a lot in, um, like, the crime fiction kind of genre. Um, he did write some mysteries also. Um, he wrote under a variety of different names. Um, he wrote in different tones. I mean, there are some books of his uh, that are very funny. Um, so he would write humorous heist thrillers um, with a character, a very popular series character, popular with his fans, um, Dortmunder, uh, John Dortmunder. Uh, and they were usually set in uh, New York City. And this is a this is a uh, professional criminal who plans uh, heists uh, brilliantly, but then everything seems to go wrong when the heist is carried out. So it's it's to, to a humorous degree. <laughs> so probably uh, well, the first film adaptation of a Dortmunder book was The Hot Rock, the film with Robert Redford as Dortmunder and mm. George Siegel as his partner Kelp. Um, so. He has fans who, I mean, a lot of the fans just know the Dortmunder books and are, you know, love that character. Um, and then he wrote other books under a different name, Richard Stark. That was the pseudonym. And it was almost like the flip side of the Dortmunder books where you have another career criminal who carries out ice. But the tone is serious. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dark tone. And... Um, you know, another another thief who plans, you know, these these heists brilliantly. Um, things go wrong, but what what happens and what what plays out is, um, for the most part, you know, serious in nature. So that those books have, you know, different fans. Okay, mm. and then there are people who like both both kinds of books, like me. So. Nice. He was, a, you know, he wrote under different names and he also had um, many different kinds of um, approaches to fiction. So that were very interesting. Um, he also, you know, he, he wrote um, th things with non-serious characters that are very interesting, um, that are that are experimental even. So anyway, um, so that's who he was. Uh, he he passed away. Um, in 2008, on um, New Year's Eve, actually, and um, he was approached in um, the 90s, I guess I'm forgetting now, but I think in 94, 95, early 95, about um, writing a uh, James Bond film, and he was approached by um, the vice president of production at MGM UA at the time, Jeff Kleeman. Okay. Mm. So in the book forever and a death, there is an afterword by Jeff Kleeman that explains why, you know, why and how Kleeman got in touch with him and what happened. Um, I've interviewed Jeff Kleeman for MI6 confidential. So I got yeah. to talk to him about this and, and talk to him about his afterward. Um, but basically Kleeman was a fan of Donald Westlake. Huge um, fan. I, yeah. I, it's a really awesome afterward, by the way. I enjoyed reading it. He's like, oh, my God, I love James Bond. I love Donald E. Westlake. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm not I don't want to, 
you know, spoil this too much, but um, there's a whole thing about uh, Westlake actually appeared as an extra in Live and Let Die. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, in, in one of the thing. In one of, yeah, in one of the New York scenes. And the first film, the first Bond film that Kleeman saw in a theater was Live and Let Die. So he, he writes a little bit about that. Little did I know that I was, you know, I was watching an author who I would be a fan of, who I would later hire for the Bond series. So the thinking was um, that we're going to we're going to try to restart um, uh, the Bond films, because this is during that that long, like six year hiatus after License to Kill, where there were lawsuits. And um, and after that was all out of the way and they could start up again, they had to figure out where where are we going to go with the series? Mm. Okay. Um, so. They also had a change of um, uh, basically a change of leadership in MGM UA. Okay, so they had a new regime, and Jeff Kleeman was part of that new regime along with John Cowley. And they were actually the ones who decided that they weren't going to use um, Timothy Dalton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they basically they they wanted to have like they wanted to go into it fresh. And one of the ways that Kleeman, um, to my understanding. Um, wanted to approach it was let's bring in some some uh, interesting voices to write the scripts uh, and why not since Brock since Broccoli and Saltzman had hired Roald Dahl for example to write Only with Twice and Anthony Burgess was hired to write a draft of The Spy Who Loved Me. Clement's thinking was why don't why don't we try to bring in another you know interesting author to to do a script so he. Yeah. He got in touch with with Westlake in I yeah I think the spring of '95, um, and and then they were off. I mean uh, Westlake was pitching ideas to him through letters, and then eventually he came on board and wrote uh, two treatments, and essentially it didn't work out. It's explained mm. in the afterward why, mm. and. Um, and wet and you know Westlake left and eventually developed um, that material that he wrote into a novel um, called Fall of the City, not originally you know Forever and a Death, Fall of the City. So he wrote that in 97, 98. I know that he showed it to his editor in 98, mm. um, and it never got published. Um, Amazing. Amazing. Got, well, I mean, it never got published until whenever it was, 2017. So um, he basically, for, and I'm not really clear on the reasons why, but he shelved it. And Cle- Jeff Kleeman didn't even know that he had written this. It's, um, it's crazy. It's... Yeah. So so I know I know about a lot of this because... I mean, even before I read the afterward, um, because I went to the Westlake uh, collection uh, in the Howard Gottlieb Archival Center, which is at Boston University. Okay, so I went there in uh, 2015 in like February, and I went there because I had heard um, that, uh, or I learned that the Westlake, tr- um, bond treatments were there and I wanted to read them. So I mm. went to, I went to the archive. Um, um, I had them pull like 
five or six boxes because I'm a fan of his work and I just wanted to mm. see what else was in there. I wanted yeah. to see the unpublished stuff. So I go through the treatments and then I notice this other folder in one of the other boxes that's labeled Fall of the City. And it has the Hong Kong research, like all the articles that he used, sticking out of the folder. So I'm like, I'm, I go, he, he, this, is, this is a novel, and this is probably based on the treatment. So I start flipping through the novel, and very quickly, I'm nodding my head going, yeah, this is based on the treatment. So, and I'll talk, about, I'll talk about the scenes and the material that was used later. Um, but I, I got really excited, and because this was not known at the time. You know, th this was not public. So I, um, I wrote an article on the treatments, and I mentioned the novel, and I um, got in touch with MI6 Confidential. They published it, um, and then, you know, I, I sent an email to Charles R. Dye at Hard Case Crime, and I, you know, I let him um, know about it, but it turns out he already knew. He said, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of putting it out, but it would require a lot of editing. But eventually he put it out. Um, so that's great. And, and the thing is, I reached out to Hard Case Crime because they had already published two um, posthumous novels by Wesley, Memory and The Comedy is Finished. Two posthumous novels already prior to Forever Does That. Wow, jeez. They published, yeah, one that he had written in the early 60s and one that he had written in the early 80s. Um, what the hell? So I said, why not do, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, you want to think about doing a third one? So I, yeah, I sent the email to Charles and yeah, and it happened. Now, if you want to read more about that, how it got published, because it wasn't, there were a whole lot of factors. I mean, it wasn't just, it wasn't just me set, sending the email to Charles. Um, That'd be cool though. Yeah, that, that would be cool. But there were many different factors involved as again, again, it was already on his radar. Um, but if you want to read about um, how it how it reached publication, it's a really interesting article. It's called The Spy Who Wasn't There, and it's on the official Donald Westlake website. And it's written by his son, Paul Westlake. Nice. Um, really outstanding research and just a really interesting article about how this thing finally got released. So that's that's the story in a nutshell. That's fantastic. I, I like the obviously we we we've known for for well, since its publication or since its announcement, anyways, that obviously Forever and a Death was a posthumously published book. But I I'm learning right now about the two other ones. I can I I'm I'm imagining Westlake where he's like, okay, I'm a good writer. These things are selling well, but I'm not gonna live forever. I need my kids and my grandkids. I need my estate to make continue making money. I'm gonna write so many books. That even after long after my demise, they'll keep on finding manuscripts that can publish them. <laughs> three, three. Is there a fourth one? I don't. There could be. I don't. I didn't see anything there, but I didn't go through the whole collection. Who knows? Yeah. Um, you can actually see online if you go to the um, to the the Gottlieb Archival Center website. You can see like a um, a list of what's in the what's in the collection. So if you're if anybody in your audience wants to make a trip there, I mean, they could they could look at the treatments. They could look at like tons of scripts that he wrote that were never filmed. Um, oh, yeah. He wrote a musical that was never produced. 
Really? Okay. <laughs> it's really, it's really kind of um, a shame because there's so much great stuff that's just sitting there. And you, I mean, the guy was just so prolific, and it's just too bad a lot of this stuff didn't get. Well, you know, it, it's funny. I sort of liken, you know, I'm listening to you, to your explanation there, Phil, and I sort of liken it to what's going been happening for about four or five years now with, with Fleming's unpublished material, the uh, the author Anthony Horowitz, who's now written two continue or a prequel and a mid-sequel, whatever, who cares, but he's written two Bond books that take place in Fleming's time timeline, and, and they're both uh, inspired by snippets of, of material that Fleming had concocted, but that was never really used, either in film or TVs or in a book or anything. Yeah. And that, that uh, one of them was the inspiration for Trigger Mortis. The other one was the inspiration for uh, Forever and a Day. Not death, but day. I, I, I remember when they announced that. I don't remember which title I learned of first. Was it Forever and a Death and or Forever and a, and a Day? But I couldn't help but think, like, is, is one of these people going like, oh, I know about the other manuscript. I'm going to do a play on that. <laughs> I don't know, but. Yeah, for um, Forever and a Death was before Forever and a Day, and again, that was um, Forever and a Death was a title that um, I'm assuming Char- I think Charles or Die was the one who picked that title, um, mm. but it was I, I'm assuming it was done in collaboration with the family with Westlake's family, but um, uh, that was a title that he had written in a letter to. Um, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli as a suggested title for the film. And I think that I, I think the Westlake family and Charles and Charles Ardai felt like that's that's more of a grabber of a title forever to death rather than fall of the city. Um, I don't know how um, I don't know why Anthony Horowitz decided on forever in a day. <laughs> it was yeah, it was strange to see that soon after. Yeah. I, I wonder. Uh, yeah, maybe. Who knows? I don't know how busy he is. Maybe we'll. You know, we got some balls. Maybe we'll tweet at him and say, "Do you want to talk about that?" But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm now. I'm imagining Horowitz going like, "Huh, that's a good <laughs> title." I've also found. I've also uncovered unused manuscripts from an author I like very much. Here's an idea. <laughs> well, I think. Um, I think uh, Ian Fleming Publications. When, my understanding is that when they hired him to do the continuation novels, they basically gave him the the treatments. They were like tel- they were TV show treatments that Fleming. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, and he and they gave him they gave them to him and said basically, you know, you can incorporate these into your into your novels. Uh, and I read both of those books and I thought he I thought he did a great job. I mean, I I think both of those novels are strong and. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I, I really like the murder. Is it the murder on wheels? Murder on mm-hmm. wheels. I think is Fleming story. I'd like to read the the original story. Um, and what I've heard is that they were, the uh, treatments were included in like the first edition of the book, which oh, okay. really, really hard to find to probably go for a lot of money. Um, but you know, I, I thought they were pretty cool. He did, he did a nice job. I'm hoping he writes more. Fine continuation novels. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. I like them quite a bit. I like them quite a bit. But speaking of uh, forever and a death, um, who wants to do the plot? 
<laughs> nobody. I guess I'll have to do it. Um, uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> boy, that was an interesting like discussion. Like uh, description. Wasn't I great? Um, so. mm. Oh, I know. And and thanks for that. And and what's funny, we we usually you and me, Matt, we both have our copies of of the book, and you usually have an audio copy as well. Although there's no audio version of this book. This is a bit of a unique situation where I lent you the copy of the book I had, that I did that I didn't read. So thank you for this post post production <laughs> plot synopsis. I'm gonna let I you guys talk. You read long and and I had oh. when, like I'm not a big reader. Like I had to spend most of my day yesterday uh, m- morning reading the book. I had like a, a little over 100 pages to finish it and. It took me like I woke up early and I finished around noon, and I like I, I good. yeah, it's it's a yeah I'm not a, a quick reader um, and uh, honestly I'm more uh, I consume more most of my reading I do uh, audio I'm not a I get I tend to I guess I must, I must be a little bit uh, ADHD but I tend to remember better with the audio with the narration and I wish they did, they had there 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 was a audiobook version because I'd love to hear like actors or actresses or do yeah. voices the characters because there's mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of dialogue with uh, some some characters and love to hear what the, an actor could bring to a part which makes me think I'd love to see this ad- adapted as a movie because like the par- parts of the plot I actually really enjoyed like the the the, the, the weapon that the villain wants to use um, mm. as to destroy Hong Kong that was kind of cool honestly very Bondian but I looked at it and it's actually a phenomenon that exists I don't think they use it to this. To, to, to do any demolition, but there's something called a, a soliton wave that is like it's it's more created created in in a in a closed environment, but it looks like it's a self-generating wave that pretty interesting. Sort of. Yeah, it's um it's like a it's a cascading wave that's tri- in the case of the novel it's triggered by explosives and it's used to um, destroy, you know, an area of buildings that are that are built on unstable landfill. So it's an easy way of basically dropping all of the buildings all at once, and then eventually, you know, everything basically turns to soup, and then, um, you know, it it dries eventually, and then construction can come in and just build on top of whatever. In this case, casinos and hotels. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, because at the start of the book, uh, spoilers. I actually did read it for once. Uh, at the start of the book, um, they're testing it on a small uh, island off the coast of, of Australia, which is where sort of all are the entire or almost the entire cast of characters sort of converges for the first time in the book. And it, it's a, it's an interesting concept when you have the um, uh, George uh, explaining because yeah, Richard Curtis being our, our lead villain here, but his engineer George is is the guy that's behind the Soliton, and it was really like I'm not an a I'm not an I'm not an engineer and I don't understand much about about procedures like that, uh, but the way it was being described, I could tell that certainly Westlake had had uh, studied in the sense that he had done some research. Like it. 
I wasn't reading those paragraphs as the character of George was explaining how it's going to work and going like, oh, like Westlake is clearly just making this up on the fly. Like it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess that would work, you know. Um, it's enough details that, oh, uh, I understand. It's it sounds plausible. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it's um, when they when he was doing um, the treatments. Um, I mean, the Solitan plays. Um, basically the same role in that first treatment that he wrote. Um, and he was, you know, just based on the correspondence that I've seen, um, he was really enthusiastic about using it. And yeah, he had, he had done the research. Um, I think that Ian was, they were really into the idea. Um, but then when they do the second, when he did the second treatment, it was, it's, it's gone. It's basically, um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, to my understanding, wanted to use uh, a nuclear device instead in the second treatment, which is, um, you know, not as unique. I mean, it's been used in so many different movies. Um, and that and and that was one of the reasons I believe um, that Westlake ended up leaving, because it just wasn't as interesting to him mm. to have it come down to a nuclear device under under Hong Kong. Um, as a as a you know a climax. Um, Can you imagine a Bond book where a nuclear device is used to attack Hong Kong? How ridiculous would that be? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, well, that's 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 really unfortunate uh, to know that that of all the people that could have axed the idea of the solitan. How's that supposed to be said, by the way? Solitan, solitan, solitan. I think it's solitan. Solitan. I, uh, I saw some YouTube channels talk about it and it's soliton soliton uh but for 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 all the of all the people that could have nixed that idea barbara my lovely dear beautiful barbara that's disappointing that's you i i still love her dearly but that's very disappointing because it's so it is creative it's it's engineer and and it's used so wonderfully in forever and a death because you have this character who you know he he almost reminds me of uh the, the name of the gentleman escapes me, but the poor soul uh, who who helped create the first atom bomb and said, oh, this is great. This is an experiment. We'll, 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 we'll push forward science and, oh, shit, we're going to nuke Japan with this? Oh, no. Like, it's almost like the same thing where it's like this is great experiment. We're yeah. going to we're going to create new or, or metamorphosize land to, and reshape it. It's, it's scientific. And no, this the villain, my boss, is actually going to destroy one of the most important cities in the entire planet with it. So it's 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 yeah. it's used beautifully in the story, I find. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, and that the whole sequence on Kanawit Island um, that that opens the novel, because we're it's almost like we're we're just kind of thrown into this because the the solitan is used pretty early on in the book. Um, <laughs> But in the in the first treatment, it actually happens part. It's like maybe a quarter of the way through. I, I don't remember exactly. But but Bond is um, I believe it's in the same location, roughly. And the villain, um, you know, uh, uh, sets off the, the solitan and Bond is standing there. He's the witness to it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a similar kind of thing. There's no fail-safe mechanism. And um, there is somebody from uh, an ecological guardian group um, mm. who 
who dives in the water uh, and, you know, and Bond is basically like frantically trying to trying to stop the solitant from going off when he sees her in the water. But of course, he can't do anything. Well, the, in the in the treatment, the person who dives in is a, is actually a Chinese um, secret agent who is working undercover uh, mm. in one of these environmental groups. The Wailin, so to speak. Right. Exactly. So so that so although the sequence on, on Kanawin Island is I mean, it's roughly the, it, it's very similar to what happens in the treatment. Um, there, there is that uh, important difference um, because in the novel, of course, Kim Balder is actually working for this organization and is not uh, undercover. So. No, Planet Watch, I think it's called Planet Watch or That's, Earth Watch. That means the Planet Watch. Yeah. yeah, as somebody who loves Bond girls who are more like uh, normal people, not super spy, uh, I, I kind of like more the whatever uh, that version of the character that you're describing i, I, I don't think i would I, I i find her uh more fun more charming because she's <laughs> sort of naive early on mm. and she's yeah she's really a true believer uh, but she's she, she doesn't know the Satan. she, she go, she's all in over her head and i, I love that about her i did she's that she's bruised and battered at the beginning by the end she's jumping and running and It doesn't look like she's hurting anymore, but I, I I liked that that character in the book itself. Like the characters were, for the most of them, even though they're 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 replacement. Like you like the character because initially when when this book was brought and we talked about doing it for the show, I I, I was expecting and I, we discussed this off mic, but I was I'm expecting James Brock, the British secret agent. <laughs> <laughs> show up and I'm like where's where's our spy and I it's it's quite a lot like almost a third of the book in I'm like there's no James Bond it, it, it it's it's going to be uh it's Manville George Manville is our James Bond and uh, then he starts killing people I'm like oh yeah no he <laughs> like James Bond yeah <laughs> um yeah there was uh well just I'll just mention a few things more about the research and is somewhat related to what what Matt was talking about. Um, the, the correspondence that I saw and used for the article was essentially um, Westlake's letters to Eon. Okay, there were no letters coming from Eon. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so basically I had, to, I had to do research and write the article based on Westlake responding to them. Like he, you'd see in like a letter Oh, so you don't like that idea. Okay, I'll take that out. Or you don't like that title. Okay, how about these titles? And I forgot how many letters there are that he wrote in, in, in the collection. But like he did, he wrote them a letter that's a character bio for the bad guy in the treatments. Gideon, it's this long bio and it's fascinating. Mm. Um, and you can see his, his excitement uh, about the project in that, in that letter. But there also, and this was very helpful. I probably couldn't have written the article without this. There is a document in that in that collection where um, it's basically work. It's Michael Wilson um, stating who wrote what, who came up with with, you know, okay. came right. up with the ideas. And 
And it's basic, and it, it basically says, you know, Westlake has the freedom to use these ideas, and he can use the soliton. You know, if he wants to put that in a book, he can do mm, that. Right, so, when you, right, right. so when you read my article and you're seeing, oh, Wilson came up with this idea, Westlake came up with that idea, it's because I had that document. Um, mm. So it's it's like, and when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is this is old mine. This is so helpful. Um, so. So seeing that, I mean, it definitely, I mean, there were, there were, there were cool ideas that Westlake came up with that he was then free to use. So it's like, why, why not? If he put all this work into it, to it and he, he loves to write and he was, and he was prolific. Why not? Why not do a novel based on this stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. It, 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 this is my first, uh, Matt, is this your first Westlake book? It's, it's certainly my first Westlake yes, book. Yes, it is. It's my first book, actually. I've never read a book. I be illiterate. Oh, one of, one of us had to read the one of us had to read this damn book. Uh, somebody's got to come to this show prepared. Uh, but more more seriously, given that it, under the the prism that that it it was my first Westlake, you know, I didn't quite know what to expect. Oh, okay, right. We're going to talk about the book that sort of, kind of, maybe, but not really became Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Westlake is a really good writer. I liked it a lot. And I like, uh, going back a little bit to what you were saying, Matt, uh, when you were describing the Kill, Kim, Kill Boulder? Kim Boulder, excuse me, uh, character, was his characterizations are phenomenal. Um, I felt with respect to George Manville, Kim Boulder, uh, Jerry Dietrich, who Mayor may not make it to the end, Luther, and and especially Richard Curtis, who might be my favorite character in the book. I felt like we really went on character journeys with every one of those. Who are they at the start of the story? Who are they and how are they thinking when the proverbial poop hits the fan? And who are they near the end of the book? I, I thought it was... I thought it was excellent. You know, I, I might be, I, I'll be showering Westlake with a lot of praise because I think I'm on that high when you've just discovered something like, oh, wow, this guy's really good at writing stories. <laughs> like I'm sort of in that mode right now. I might, might, I might pick up one of those Parker books or, or the, or the fifth or the heist books. Cause I was really impressed by just his, his appreciation of characterization. I, I like that a lot. Even like, small character like Colin Bennett or uh, Morgan Palifer, Bennett especially is somebody that throughout the story you see him like he's not in the beginning but by the end he's like killing people and and in test ways and he's getting off on it and he's delusional thinking that oh yeah I'm gonna work with that dude again just like you see him losing his brain it's at the end that like they're able to to make him snap out and say, uh, yeah, the bums are there and there and there and there and there. It's, it's so, sort of because of him that they're able to disarm the, the plot. But I found his thought process and actions to be he's so nasty. Like, at first I was disappointed because I, I, I like the henchman. And, like, I really like the henchman in that book. I like uh, Palifer. Palifer was just yeah. <laughs> nasty piece of shit. Sorry. He's just, he's just, like, and, and the backstory that he used to be a drug smuggler in Colombia, and he's, like, I, I've been casting this, this book that, rather than my reading, I'm like, that's a, like, t- 
Tom Berenger type, like uh, craggly mm. looking. He used to be good looking, now he's just old and fat and sort of not <laughs> not as not as capable, capable, but just nasty. And for for um, uh, Bennett, I was thinking because he's he, he, I think he's meant to be look look Samoan if I understood the description. I was thinking of Mr. Kill in uh, Die Another Day. <laughs> that's who I was picturing. Like I was like, oh, I, that that's that's what I had in mind for some reason. Sort of um, yeah, because he's meant to be sort of physically imposing. Because uh, he kills um, he kills uh, what's his name? Uh, Jerry, I think. Yeah. Which was a huge surprise. I was like, no, no, like he's either either Colin is gonna snap out of it and he'll be like, oh, I need to help you guys, or something stupid will happen. He'll leave and Jerry will be like, oh, I can escape through the window. I don't know, but. No, man, he really kills him off. I was like, wow, we just axed off like, oh, the character we've been following for 250 pages here. It's like... It's disgusting the way he kills him, too. The suck in his, in his mouth just... Ugh. ugh. It, it, it's... No, no. Uh, and, yeah. Some, the the man, Manville, when he kills uh, uh, Palifer, it's just... I, that That's one of the murders. I'm like... Because mm. he kills a few people early in the story... But I feel like feel like he was on adrenaline. This was a cold-blooded murder. I kind of, it didn't fit with the character. That, that's that's a, a bond. It's a very bond moment. Moment. It kind of reminds me of a similar mo- moment in the world is not enough when he kills people like cold-blooded and, and he's hiding in a car. Um, kills yeah. A, well, yeah. I think um, if, if I remember correctly, Palifer goes for his gun. He like yeah. he jerks the steering wheel and turns the car around and he goes for the gun. And then that's where um, Manville shoots him. Um, but and actually the the first two guys that he that he injures, uh, well, he thinks he kills them, but as it turns out, there was they were still alive and Powell mm. ends up finishing them off. Yeah. Which kills yeah. Yeah. Says a lot about both of those characters, I guess. You know, Manbo, who's sort of on that bizarre I've never been in a situation like that. Hopefully I won't need to be, but that sort of bizarre adrenaline, I suppose, where you're doing something that really means life and death, and you, but you have no experience with it, and you have Palifer that's like, well, I don't need these guys anymore. They're useless. So uh, says a lot about those two characters, which, again, goes back to just simple things, like going back to the Colin character that you mentioned, Matt, played by Mr. Kill. Um <laughs> You know, when he's introduced, when he's introduced, we get those few paragraphs about, oh, he really needs a job. Oh, Mr. Curtis called me like, oh, thank God, I get a second chance. And we sort of were given an an indication of why his life has been on the downturn for a while and why he's so excited to to, to work with, with Curtis again. But even that's developed further Later on, and, and this is a character that shows up at like page 300 or whatever, 200 or something like that. It's like this Westlake guy, I, I don't know if he does this at all of his books. Like I said, it's the only one I've read, but this, I felt this was just a beautiful example of every single character is important. And every single character needs to feel three-dimensional. And I need to respect each of these characters, whatever their fate might be. Whether they make it out of the, whether they're still standing at the end of the book or not, they all need personality. They all need 
thought bubbles, real thought bubbles, not platitudes or anything like that. I was, I, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think that's that was my major takeaway from from Westlake's work on this book, anyways. Yeah. So, um, so at the time that he that he wrote this, he had um, he had just brought back um, the Parker character. Uh, so. He had stopped, He had written um, several Parker books uh, in the 60s and into the early 70s. In the 1974, he stopped writing them for a while, so he didn't pick up again until like 96. Okay, so he he had just brought back Richard Stark as the pseudonym and the Parker character, so he had the Parker books on his mind. And I mention that because this book is has really i mean a very similar structure to a typical parker book it's okay. it's split into four parts um the character that uh that you think is going to be um the central character uh the hero um not that parker is a hero parker is really uh you know parker's a bad guy but he's the protagonist um disappears for I mean, Manville is out of this book for 70 pages, I counted. And these characters that you think are really peripheral characters end up playing a significant role, okay? And, and their actions start to, start to affect, you know, mm. uh, basically what, what's going to happen in the story. So that's very typical of a Parker book. I mean... Um, Parker will be the protagonist in the first two parts, and then he disappears for the third part. And all, yeah, and and all of the um, characters, supporting characters that have been introduced already, but also new characters come in, and they and they start to do things that that then determine, you know, how the story plays out when Parker comes back fascinating and it's the same thing i mean he's out for in the longer books he could be out for 60 70 pages um what surprised me about this is that when manville actually comes back it really continue. it, it really becomes more of an ensemble yeah yes and he's really only the protagonist i mean well i mean curtis has a significant role too but yeah i would i would not call manville protagonist of this novel it's really an ensemble as edgar said so and it's it's interesting that you you elaborated on on westlake's style as a storyteller with regards to his characters because uh matt you and i have been at the time of this recording we've gone through five gardner books and you know we won't bore the listeners with our general opinions again but some of the conversations we've had on mic off mic are his his characters the ungodly quantity of characters that he includes in his book sometimes to good effect other times to less good effect westlake seems like a, a an example of an author that understands how to juggle a high volume or high number of characters because no one no one is shortchanged in this book whereas no. i found since since we're in the midst of the garners right now we're sort of in that almost halfway through maybe not quite halfway through but since we've read a, a, a handful of them yeah that's that's maybe one of the negatives i think we'd agree with garner 
it's that it's like guy just like calm down man you don't you don't need an 11th character here like you're not even developing these characters very well to begin with whereas westlake it's like sure yeah introduce someone at page 350 the the hong kong the hong kong uh, inspector there that they're going to see at the police station yeah fine I, I know this guy's going to be well-developed. You're kind of sad when that character goes. And, and it's a character yeah. that's introduced late and dies quickly. But it's just the, the, the way he's written just makes him charming and interesting. I, mm. Honestly, it's it's a really... I, I like like you. Uh, I'm going to pick up another Westlake uh, for sure. Because um, I actually like this one. And I feel... I feel like it might not be one of his best book, even though I liked it. I feel like it, it's probably not his best work, but the characterization and it's, and it's a fun plot to be honest. Like, um, I, I don't know if he writes these, uh, these super villains that have like the, these weapons of mass destruction in his own books. It's very, it's very Bondian, but the heist aspect and the characterization, uh, those were fun. Like I, 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 it was easy to read and fun to read. It's it's not a chore like sometimes a gardener can be. And who are you? Okay, oh, that's that's my my favorite game. Who who are you casting in this? I know. I Did like this game this? too. Ah, uh, see, but when we play this game, I need a little bit of time to think about it. I don't know if I can do it on the fly. Like I know we talked about it a little bit last night. I, I couldn't help it. I think Richard Curtis just behave so much like Elliot Carver that I was seeing Jonathan Price so that's like easy that's an easy win right there but as for everybody else I I I, I don't I, I I'd have to give some thought into it unless Phil unless you have some ideas right off the bat huh? yeah and I uh, luckily I thought of this because I know you you when we had a discussion earlier you had mentioned about casting um I was thinking about people who would have who would have um been in a movie of this when it was written so the late 90s so i was trying to think of who was who was the right age and who was you know in films at that time so richard curtis brian dennehy i would have which one's that brian Brian Brian. he is um the villain in the first rambo yes oh okay okay interesting yeah at the time he was um, getting a lot of great notices on Broadway for doing uh, Death of a Salesman. Um, really good actor. I think he would have been perfect as Richard Curtis. And I would, um, in the role of Manville, I would cast, uh, I would have cast uh, an actor named Jeremy Northam, um, who actually tested for Bond in the late 80s. Um, so a, a British actor, he appeared in he was in a lot of stuff from that period. He was in An Ideal Husband. He was in um, a film called Mimic uh, with Mira Servino. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, he play, he plays. He's the the male lead in that. So it's and and that's really the kind of role. I mean that that's a similar type of role in that he's not somebody who is like a man of action. He's a scientist. He's a little. He's nerdy, mm. uh, and he has to basically learn and and get the courage to be a hero so you see if you see i was thinking of mimic as i was reading this in northern <laughs> yeah. all right um for kim and i i didn't really have a lot of ideas but just because she was uh popular at the time uh, uh cameron diaz um hmm. well oh morgan palifer tom berenger i could see but you know who i thought would be perfect scott glenn uh, oh yeah, yeah. 
That's actually pretty good. I do so like I, that. In my mind, I was casting the, the movie uh, <laughs> as if it was made today. So I cast mostly modern actors. Um, but yeah, yeah Scott Glenn still could work even if they were making this movie today. And it happened in 2020. I, Scott the craggly face, probably better than Barringer's because he's more fit than than Barringer. Barringer kind of let himself go. Last time I saw him was Inception, and he, he looked like Santa Claus. Barringer's still a good-looking guy. I think. He's, not, he's not bad looking; he's just not fit. He used to be, I wouldn't say cut, but he, I, I wouldn't believe that he runs a boat in South America for the past. 20 years, let's say. I, I wouldn't believe Tom Barringer. While Scott Glenn, I, mm. I see him. Mm. I, I, there, there's a toughness to Scott Glenn that you no longer get with Barringer. Uh, Barringer, it, it feels more grandfatherly. It feels more like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a corporate uh, tycoon uh, than uh, somebody who lives uh, check, paycheck by paycheck in the middle of the ocean. And, yeah. <laughs> That's 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 actually better casting than I than my Tom Berenger from the 90s. Um, I honestly I I I, I was thinking actually I'm go, my mind's going for action hero. I'm think, I was thinking for Manville, um, Chris Pratt because he has like the everyman quality. He's kind of funny, but he can he's not super like he, when you see like the the action movies that he does. He's sort of a schlubby. He's sort of eh. Like a Star Lord is not like he's not amazing as Star Lord. He's kind of like a loser. Um, Chris Chris Pratt, but we'd have to ask him to stop the MCU diet, go back to your sitcom diet, then you're hired. You know, well, not, not as because he had a he had a belly, but just don't go to the gym as much. Like don't don't go. And for uh, Kim Balder, um, um, Margot Robbie, uh, she's a little bit older than she is yeah. in the book, but she. The Australian accent, it just... I can see that, yeah. Um, that, that would be a very marketable movie, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, big time, actually. Wow, Margot Margo, uh, Margo Kidder. What? Uh, uh, although I would see that movie. <laughs> uh, Margot Robbie, yeah, that, that's interesting. I didn't... Um, yeah, whenever we play this game, I do tend to sort of consider when the book was published so i would not but yeah if they made a, a 2020 like if the story happened today yeah, it's pretty good casting pretty good casting i I'll, my, i might play the game on my own for a 1997 or um yeah i guess well that's the kid trick it was published in 2017 but it was written in the late 90s so it's a little you know i'll i'll, I'll do it 90s style <laughs> if you do it in the 90s kim balder call him that's all i'm gonna say Kylie Minogue. <laughs> Maybe. Britney Spears? Britney Spears? <laughs> <laughs> gotta get the, we got to get the kids of the late 90s in there. Got to get the pop stars. <laughs> but um, another thing I noticed about the book was uh, Westlake certainly, especially when we're in Australia and, and when we're in Hong Kong, is... Uh, the detail into which he goes into describing the places and the streets. It, it almost like there was no Google Maps back in the day, which probably made that type of research a lot more difficult. But uh, it, it feels like he's writing this thing with his smartphone and Google Maps right next to him. Because, oh, Kim was she's, – she's chased by 
the goons and she turned on this street. Then she walked down to the beach on that street. And then it's like, I, I feel like I'm discovering like every single street in this city in this book. He, he was very thorough in that. And, and then when the action transfers over to, to Hong Kong, that was equally as interesting and a little bit of a maybe sneak peek at what happened behind the scenes up to this recording. We, we've sort of dabbled a little bit in zero minus 10 because zero minus 10 is related to forever and a death in, in many respects. And I read zero minus 10 after I finished forever and a death because forever and a death is the main topic here, but like, the same street names were appearing. Like, oh, Bon, oh, George Manville was on that street too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to it's really interesting to see um, to read the two of them back to back because there are so many similarities. And um, I guess actually they could take place in the same universe because you know, in zero minus ten, that's set right before the handover. And this is set a few, a couple of years uh, after the hand. Mm. So, I mean, you could theoretically imagine two of these plots. <laughs> That's, uh, I like to uh, in disgruntled, disgruntled uh, businessman. Uh, Hong Kong is Hong Kong is. Is the new New York? We're in so far as well. That's the city everybody wants to destroy. All of a sudden. Well, um, in zero minus ten. I mean, I won't. You know, I'll. I'll make this brief but basically that's um that's more tied up in uh the politics of of the handover so so when when you read that book you get more of a sense of what what could happen what's at stake for the people of of mm. hong kong once it's mm. you know it's turned it's basically handed back to the chinese um uh you know what are um you know what 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 could happen and what what is the what is the feeling in the air so and and the 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 villain in that is a is a british businessman who's had um you know he's he's insane but uh, as we as we find out during the book but he's had um this business that's gone through generations in his family so he he he's getting you know to, in his mind he's getting revenge on the chinese because they're they're taking away a business that's, mm. that's tied to his family. Mm. Uh, and um, it's weird because it, it reminds me of um, zero minus 10 reminds me of like one of the James Clavell books, particularly a noble house. Okay. Which was, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that, I'm afraid not. that was made into um, a mini series with Pierce Brosnan in hmm. 1988 or 89 and it was updated because i think the, the book is set in the early 60s they updated it to when it was made so even in 88 89 people were nervous about the handover and it factors into the story and the dialogue um so and it was actually shot in hong kong it was shot on location so if you want if you want to see you know, a really good miniseries with someone who played James Bond in this Hong Kong setting with this tension of the handover. You know, he plays, um, Brosnan actually plays a businessman who has had, you know, who's who's running, who's running a business that's basically, you know, it's another thing where it's been in his family for generations. So 
you know, I, I highly recommend that. That's nice. really yeah, I just Googled cool. it. Yeah, interesting. Small world, huh? Brosnan. You got a Bond book. I'm, I'm going to get all these universes mixed up. We got the... Be- we got the Forever and a Death, then we got the Benson book, which is a Bond book, which is from 97, which is when Brosnan was Bond, and Brosnan played, which takes place in Hong Kong, and there are tensions about the approaching handover, but Brosnan, pre-Bond Brosnan was in a Hong Kong, like, what? Yeah, <laughs> and, and actually, uh, John, the co-star in that is John Reese davies so, mm. and, and as mm, we, yeah. Brosnan had just lost out at the chance of co-starring with Reese davies in a Bond film, so... Jeez, uh, there, there are all these connections, um, but uh, yeah, but this, but this this book is not really concerned with the politics of it, and mm-hmm. and coming, you know, being set a couple years after the handover. I mean, I think it's even set at one point during the book. I mean, it's ironic now, but somebody makes, I don't know if a character says it, but. Somebody says something like, well, there, there isn't really, there, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between. Right, I don't remember that, but it could be, could be. Something, something like that. I wish I could find it, but there's something like that in the book where it doesn't feel different than it mm. did before the handover. And of right. course, you know now that that's not the case. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was something else I was going to say about Hong Kong. Well, I, don't think I, I think. The villain's plot in Forever and a Death does feel, and I think, Matt, you said something like, it kind of feels like a traditional Bond villain's plot. Um, and that's not to say that the, the villain's plot in Zero Minus Ten isn't a traditional Bond villain's plot, but it's true that in the Benson book, because it's the pre-handover, there's, there's maybe more, um, I guess, at what at the time would have been prescient tension, whereas... In Forever and a Death, you know, if I was to, it's an unfair criticism because it's a criticism, it's a, it's a, a crit, it's a criticism by way of comparing it to another book, which I, I'm not a big fan of doing. But, but if I was going to do one criticism, yeah, a lot rides on. Well, he's Richard Curtis is angry because of what happened, so he's gonna sink Hong Kong, you know. Whereas in Zero Minus Ten, it's more. No, go ahead, man. Sorry, I cut you off. But he feels like the end of. Uh, forever that that Curtis would have you know he wants the money that he's trying to rub from from beneath Hong Kong as much as like he if his push comes to shore I think he'd destroy it. like he would just like you know what hell this book he would have collapsed the city not care about the money just to destroy it then by the end like he kind of I I didn't understand the end you might have like to because he kind of dies but the the, the boat kind of collapses on himself oh, it sinks like, I didn't, it sinks yeah. like, I was trying to like finish it I'm like, uh, and he's dead the lights <laughs> the, the lights oh, of is... Hong Kong uh, are on but uh, his light is <laughs> went out basically <laughs> well he's got his little remote controlled sub which is what um, brought the gold over to his boat and he, I think he, I feel you might need to correct me on some of the details. The the sub is sort of connected to the boat, but it's still a few feet away. So I think he wants to go get his gold and bring it onto the boat. He's alone at this yeah. point. I mean, the, the gig is up at this point. And as he's trying to sort of oh, go from his boat to the sub, well, they detach. So he's like, oh, shit, my boat is leaving me. 
and yeah. the hatch of the sub of the mini sub is open and he's in the harbor and there are waves so the water's going into the sub so he can no longer control the sub the hatch is open and water's coming into the hatch so it's like well that's that final sentence he was there and then he wasn't you know yeah and 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 what and um, that happens basically because he kills the, the couple there at the end that were supposed to help them, and he decides he doesn't want you know any any uh, yeah. witnesses, so he kills them, and then that ends up being his doing. Um, but I, re- I remember what I was going to say about Hong Kong. I, I wonder about why, as we as we learn from the afterward, Cleman's uh, afterward, that Eon. Um, and MGM UA kind of backed off from doing the handover as a backdrop for the film because they felt like it was it was um, politically dangerous. If something went wrong with the handover, uh, they they would they would you know it would look like they were exploiting a tragedy. Okay, so um, that's as Kleeman says that or writes that's why they they backed off from it. So, but I wonder why then. Zero minus ten came into being right around the same time. I mean, what did one thing influence the other? Was there communication between Ian Fleming Publications and Eon? I don't know. I it, it's just so strange that it is yeah. similar works. Yeah, right around. And you know, forever and forever and a death begins. You know, on the off the coast of Australia. Then we actually go to Australia proper. Then it finishes in Hong Kong. Zero minus ten starts in Hong Kong. We go to Australia, then back to Hong Kong. It's like, yeah, you know, these similarities are like really weird, really weird. Uh, they're both about the ha- they're both about the handover. They both literally take place in the same two countries. Um, there, there, are no, there are no triads involved in Forever and a Death, but so that I guess that that makes zero minus ten a little bit more more unique, but. Uh, but or different not unique but different it differs it but yeah they're there's striking major plot centric similarities between the two books i'd be curious to know as well what because uh, for for the bond producers to not go ahead with the handover as a plot point for the film but for ian fleming publications to say no we'll do that <laughs> Wait a minute. So, so wires are getting crossed here. What's happening here? Yeah. Well, I understand. I understand the Bond film people and the you know filming publications. Although I feel like they should be best friends. I'm not always convinced they are. So they really do their own little things. But you're both working on Bond. How could you both come <laughs> away with like such radically different conclusions to what you want to do with your next project? It's like. It, pro- it probably comes down to um, the size of the audience and the, and the readership, just how many people were, were, were expected to read a Bond novel as opposed to see a Bond film. Um, it might, that might have something to do with it. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, should, I should ask Raymond Benson. Raymond Benson is on Twitter. I should ask him about that. Raymond Benson seems – A, he seems like a very nice uh, gentleman, for starters – uh, B, he's now pond, pond, he's now part of Bond lore by de facto by having written a handful of Bond continuation novels. And and C, he seems like he has a lot of time on his hands because he seems to be showing up on every single podcast and every single YouTube stream. So it's like, yeah, yeah. 
it's an idea. Keep that in the back pocket. Um, um, well, I, wa- I wanted to mention, um, just going back to Morgan Palifer, who's my favorite character in the book. Um, hmm. I really like, uh, I mean, Westlake was like a master of um, similes. And he, he always, in his books, he'll always break out a couple of just really unforgettable, sometimes hilarious similes. And this is one of my favorites. The way he describes Morgan Palifer's voice, he had a raspy, <laughs> scaly voice, like the whispery sound of a lizard moving on a stone wall. Mm-hmm. That's very evocative. Probably very evocative. Line in the book. <laughs> it's it's let's it, it it tells you there's a lot of wear and tear on this individual, a lot of wear and tear, and he and that he's sneaky as well to be compared to a lizard. He's very sneaky and uh, it's good. I do like the Morgan Palifer character, although he does he doesn't you know he's one of those characters that we sort of axe about at the halfway point. I, I think my favorite probably is Richard Curtis. If I have to pick one, just because. I, it fascinated me to to follow this character, who's the villain, who has a completely insane plot, worthy of a Bond villain, um, and yet we go into his mind so often and very regularly. What's going on is like, oh, oh crap, another problem that I have to figure out. How am I going to get myself out of this one? Like there was a lot of that happening yeah. in 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 the book, which you don't even in the Fleming stories. We don't. I don't remember a Fleming villain that where we went into their head and that's what they were thinking like oh shit another problem I gotta make I I have to bullshit my way out of this one too yeah. um like it's very um it's a very different way of making a a very nasty uh piece of work uh, human in that sense not we're we're not sympathizing with him necessarily because he's in, he's a he's a madman but human in the sense that he has a problem. <laughs> he has this end game he wants to reach. George Manville and Kim and the gang. Okay, they've now effed up my plans again. I need to think of something new. Who can I call? You know, oh, I'll call this guy. He hasn't worked for me in a decade, but I'm sure he'll. I'm. I, we'll, we'll, we'll shake on it. You know, <laughs> it's. I. I really like the how how um, how perversely normal George uh, George uh, Richard Curtis felt. Despite the fact that his endgame was total preposterousness. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically, uh, um, he, he's, we know that he's insane at the beginning of the book. But, I mean, he, he, he's this kind of guy who just doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Uh, and then, you know, he's basically going to have others do his dirty work for him. Um, so, you know, he'll manipulate Colin Bennett. Um, into into doing these terrible things. So you have you have characters who are um, you have characters that like Colin Bennett that have made these terrible mistakes who who then become like increasingly immoral. Okay, who become like murderers as the book comes al- goes along. Then you have people who are who are naive and inexperienced but basically good natured. Uh, and they become um, heroes by the end, um, like like Kim and like and like Manville. Um, so you have you have um, everybody like seems to have an arc, or most of the characters have an interesting kind of character arc. So um, 
you know, and that's that's another thing that you see that you see in the Parker books. Um, it's it's uh, especially in you know in, in a section where Parker kind of disappears and you meet these mm. other characters. It's it's a guessing game as to who is going to be able to, um, you know, stand up under the pressure. Who's going to crack? I mean, we have Captain Zhang ends up killing himself because he can't he can't deal with with the guilt and. Mm. You know, it's it's you, you will see that in the Parker books, and sometimes it's completely unexpected as to who as to who lives and who di- who dies. I mean, you know, Jerry getting killed in this book is a big surprise. And sorry, I just gave it away. If you haven't read the books, but yeah, well. it's, uh, it's gonna be in the it's in the blood description. You'll see that in the in the Parker books. Yeah. So anyway, read the Parker books. <laughs> mention that again. Oh, there's no question. Well, I mean, I think I mentioned this earlier too, but there's no question that that having read Forever and a Death uh, strongly encourages me to 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 explore Westlake's prior prior work. And and uh, the the only reason I know of the Parker character, and this is another off mic conversation we had, is because of the 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 the, the Parker film with with uh, Jason Statham. Uh, which I sort of, you know, moderately enjoyed, but I'm I'm going to go into my first Parker book, like trying to forget about that movie, which is I feel is probably what I should be doing. Um, sort of like seeing Moonraker and say, oh cool, I want to read the Fleming Moonraker. Well, <laughs> get ready, get ready. Well, yeah, Parker's that that movie is actually based on uh, one of the later. It was one of the '90s Parker books, Flashfire. Um, if you uh, if you watch um, Payback uh, or Point Blank, Point Blank's the original version of Lee Marvin, but pay, but that film and Payback with Mel Gibson, those are based on the first Parker book. Nice. So you know, and and if you watch the Payback director's cut, that's probably the closest that you're going to see to that to that novel. The Hunter is the name of the novel. So. Um, that's that's like where the whole where his whole s- story starts. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, and I would I you definitely have to read them in order too. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because there's there's definitely uh, you know characters from early books reappear. All right, gotcha. Okay. Uh, there are situations in one book that will cause um, problems in a later book. That's, mm. So. He was he was the pre MCU author. He was like, right, everything's gonna make sense by the last book. <laughs> Everything is connected. Interesting, interesting. Is there anything else about Forever and a Death specifically that uh, that we have on our minds? I mean, you know, I think I, we all three of us seem to enjoy it tremendously. Uh, Phil, you're obviously a student, you're 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 a West uh, you're a Westlake student. Um, you you may have converted a couple of us right here. I'm certainly licking my chops at maybe some of those Parker books and 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 the high. Remember what the name of the heist character again? Rotunder? Not Rotunder. Uh, uh, John John Dortmunder. Dortmunder. Rotunder. Oops. Oopsie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely game to, to be reading. I, I have a few books stacking up here. I, I'm not saying I'm gonna crack one open later today, but <laughs> it's, it's on the list at least. It's on the list. 
Well, those those early ones are so short. They're like 150 pages. Oh, love it. You can read you can read like uh, two a week, maybe even three a week. Nice. Yeah. Oh boy. Cool. I'll see. Uh, maybe snooper on Amazon or something like that for those. Um, come, oh, come oh, opening, opening. Oh. One of my opening thoughts. Oh wait, I was I was just about to say something so important. Who who inter- who dared interrupt us here? M oh, M White Man. The other day it was uh, Boris. Then like Silva showed up. It's back to M White. Uh, I really like my Talium tablet. Uh, oh, and you have people everywhere. <laughs> You know, I hope if he's been sucking on that thallium long enough, maybe he'll stop interrupting our podcast one of these days. But then again, if he's already told Boris and Silva, you know, if, if he's already trained them, we might be, yeah, we might be in trouble for the next little while. Uh, but uh, yeah, we do have people everywhere, wouldn't you agree? Um, for example, the triple w dot the james bond complex dot com. I don't know why I say the triple w. I don't know why. Uh, that's also our, our Tumblr account. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Bond Complex. We're on Instagram. Search for at the James Bond Complex. Uh, search for us on YouTube. You can subscribe to our channel and tickle us with the uh, thumbs up button. Uh, we're hosted by Anchor.fm. We thank them very much for for helping us out with the, with that stuff. Um, and you can uh, listen to us on uh, Google Podcasts. And, of course, Apple Podcasts. Search for the James Bond Complex. Subscribe. uh, Write a review. And leave us a five-star glowing golden gun uh, review. Uh, Otherwise, who knows? We might know some Morgan Palifers of this world, some Colin Bennett's of this world. We, you know, we don't like bad reviews. We don't like bad reviews. (laughs) Don't, 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 you know, we we can be Richard Curtis. Um, I'm on Instagram at um, what... uh, Oh, right. At Edgar Chaput, SOS. That's right. That's right. I'm on Instagram at MattoClaire007. Phil, first of all, thank you very much for joining us again for a lovely conversation. Another Westlakian conversation. But where can you be found online? And maybe what's on tap for you? I'm at um, Phil Podge uh, at Paperback Film. So P-H-I-L-P-O-G at Paperback Film. And uh, at the moment... Um, not much, but I'll, I, I hope to get back to writing soon once things calm down at work. So, <laughs> so, so do we, so do we. And although it, although I'm, I'm sensing this is maybe like I was saying at the start of the show, we, I think we've maybe, we've reached maybe the Avengers end game of Bond slash Westlake. We'll find an excuse to bring you back. We'll find an excuse. <laughs> Thank you. That's always fun. Always a pleasure. <laughs> All right, so once again, as we say in French, merci, toujours un plaisir, et à la prochaine. Au revoir.